Welcome to COVID-19, Public Health Policy and Culture. I'm Dr. April Moreno, presenting information from various sources about the COVID-19 pandemic from public health policy and cultural perspectives. We will be sharing international accounts from policy, public health response, and even personal experiences firsthand about living in this era of COVID-19. Welcome to this episode of COVID-19, Public Health, Policy, and Culture. I'm Dr. April Moreno. We are here at what a lot of people are calling phase two of the pandemic in the United States. And that is something that in the social media world, people are still debating and for good reason, because of the fact that we have not resolved a lot of the issues that we were previously working to address with the shutdown, with the quarantine, whatever you wanna call it. And I don't really know if it matters as long as we know what we need to be doing. Terminology out there like lockdown, some have said that it's really inaccurate, that it refers more to prison populations. There's been some stuff on shutdown that it is not necessarily applicable. And then the quarantine may not be applicable because we aren't all infected. It doesn't really matter. In addition, whether we're in phase one or phase two, it doesn't really matter. Thing is, yeah, in the social media world, there is confusion. I just, I do want to address this because of the point, there's a point I'd like to make on this. Phase one is when we were first aware that it was in our community, when it was in our cities and in our county, so that we actually started to make those adjustments for protection to prevent the spread of the disease, or at least reduce the spread of the disease. And in many cases, we were successful. We've been here for over two weeks, over a month, and in many cases, over two months now of response to this pandemic. And we have been able to see that the numbers did not increase, been able to flatten that curve in terms of capacity in the hospitals. So I can see how people would say in many cases that we're done with phase one. So there's, yeah, you could debate that. Phase one and phase two, like whatever phase you're in really depends on the way you're defining the term. It depends on the factors and the measurements, and it really depends on what you want to ch you choose to look at. Similarly, I come from health IT, where we talk about data quality. Data quality, which I've learned over time, is really what you want it to be. It depends on the purpose, right? So in terms of controlling this pandemic and disease, the phases really will depend on what particularly you're looking at. For me, I would define phase maybe as um, for us to actually be able to agree as a culture, that we are all going to wear masks, that we have all successfully stayed indoors. And I would say, yeah, a lot of people have done that, but not enough people did that. And we are still seeing this is not everyone followed these guidelines. And so for that reason, you see states like Arizona, you see states, parts of California, you see a lot of situations where the numbers are continuing to rise. Now, some people are saying that that's phase two. I disagree. I think phase two was that, personally, phase two was the change of enforcement, the change of policy. That phase two was artificially imposed. That phase two is where we are currently at because cities, states have individually decided that it's okay to reopen the parks, reopen the beaches, reopen all these facilities and restaurants and gyms, my yoga studio is reopening on Monday. I'm staying far from that, stopping their online options. 
Um, I just recently signed on for their online classes and they're actually about to stop. We're only going to get one a day. Phase two is artificially imposed. Phase two is where we are because people have decided for it to be. It's really as simple as that. We have seen in many cases we have been able to flatten the curve. So you could argue, it just really depends. You could say phase two would have started a few weeks ago because we saw that the surge didn't occur when we thought it would two weeks after, two to four weeks after the pandemic reached our, our communities. You could say phase two began there. It really depends on what you're looking to decide, what you're planning to do with that data. Phase two, in my opinion, is probably now because of the fact that we are looking at this measurement of reopening. We're gonna learn a whole lot more about the disease and how it affects people because now we have somewhat somewhat more enforcement on mask wearing. We have somewhat more enforcement on social distancing in locations. And we're gonna find out what that looks like at the gym, at the yoga studio, and at the salons. We'll find out. I mean, I wanna be optimistic. And at the restaurants, I want to be optimistic. I'm not gonna participate, but I wanna hope that because everyone's wearing a mask now, hopefully, and that because we're enforcing the social distancing in these facilities and these businesses, that we'll see the disease fairly controlled. I want to believe that. I still have questions. I have questions about the use of restrooms, about the use of being in a restaurant, because you have to eat without a mask. So these are two questions that I still have. How are you safely using a restroom when we've already had this discussion from various government organizations that said that we needed to avoid public restrooms and the risk of infection there? How have we addressed that? And also, how have we addressed the fact that when you are eating in a restaurant, you won't, you won't be wearing a mask? In addition, I found it very unreliable at the county level when I see our representatives giving speeches one after the other at the same podium, they take off their mask to start speaking. Then they walk away and immediately the next speaker comes up. Now I have to assume that none of them have been infected or have been all asymptomatic, but we have already seen the science. We have already seen evidence that the virus stays in the air, especially in an enclosed space for several minutes, alive and contagious. I've seen this irresponsibility at the public health and regional level where they take off the mask and speak in that same fixed location where several people just walk back up there immediately one after the other to talk about COVID-19 safety. I have questions and I don't think phase one or phase two or whatever we're choosing to do right now is going to answer a lot of that, but We'll find out what happens in the next two to four weeks in terms of these new protective measures at businesses and where these other locations are that are really not enforcing anything. And we're actually already seeing those increases. So in Arizona, there are certain hospitals that have reached pretty much full capacity. They are quite concerned. There has been a conference. It was canceled. It's the She Podcast Conference. That was going to take place in Arizona pretty soon this year. And I know a lot of folks who were interested and very excited about being at this conference for women podcasters. It sounded like a beautiful location and everything, but I just wasn't ready to make that decision to travel over there. 
it has been postponed to next year. If any of you are in the She Podcast community or familiar, their conference was postponed to 2021 because of this rise in cases in the area. It is really hard to say whether we're at phase one or phase two. How can you say you're at phase two if you haven't learned the lessons of phase one? These phases are pretty arbitrary. They don't quite make sense. They just really depend on what you're looking to answer, what you're trying to get out of that information, how you're structuring it, what the factors are. So I can see two possible locations where phase two could have taken place. But then I see another instance where phase two shouldn't even exist at all in certain states yet. And ultimately, it just doesn't quite matter. Stay vigilant out there because people have decided to make these decisions to allow things to be open. It doesn't speak in accordance to what the virus wants to do. We are not on the same timeline. We are not working with the same decision points. And we are not looking at the data in the same way. It doesn't matter to some people, unfortunately. Stay vigilant, decide for yourself, look out for your neighbor, look out for who is out there in need of safety supplies, and continue the same protective measures that you've been working with over time, over the past few months, because it's still contagious. Whether you're in phase two or whatever phase you're in, all it takes is for another group of people to decide to act irresponsibly and for us to be back up at emergency level, a risk of not being able to provide in our hospitals. It's a very real risk. It's a very real concern. And just because businesses are opening doesn't take away from the fact that the disease, the virus, it's not messing around. Take good care out there. Today, we are talking about mental health on the COVID-19 journey on this, in this era of COVID-19 and how we can seek mental health services if we need to, what that looks like in the Latinx community, what that looks like with veterans. And we're speaking to Araceli Lopez Arenas, who is based in San Diego, and she's going to be sharing with us some of the insights she's gathered over these past few months in treating the community during the pandemic in mental health. She is on the Psychology Today website. She's also on Therapy for Latinx website. And if you are seeking mental health services, by all means, do not be ashamed. This is stressful times. Achieving mental health is a daily challenge for many of us, including myself. In my other podcast, The Sisterhood of Limitless Living, I've talked about that. I've shared my mental health story. I've had these challenges since I was six years old. I deal with anxiety and depression and all those sorts of things on a daily basis. And that's commonplace for me. But also, I want to share that because if you do need help out there, don't be afraid to seek help. And help is out there and it does make a difference. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of COVID-19 Public Health Policy and Culture. Today we're going to be talking about mental health and its important role in living and coping with the COVID-19 pandemic. So here we are looking at this locally still in the United States. And today we're speaking to Dr. Araceli Lopez Arenas. She's a mental health practitioner. She's also known as Dr. Chelly in social media. And she has a specialty in health and wellness consulting as well. So welcome, Dr. Araceli. Hi, thanks for having me. Excited to be here today. So please introduce yourself to the group, to the podcast community. Tell us about your work in mental health. I have a doctorate in counseling psychology and also a master's in public health. 
and I have a focus on multicultural psychology, particularly with the Latino Latinx community. One part I'm working on getting licensed as a psychologist, and the other part is I started a business that hopes to inspire people to complete their goals which is called ganas and go. So ganas in Spanish means grit. You have something that you want to achieve and you may be facing challenges. So it's like resilience and persistence in obtaining that goal. And so I help people when they get stuck, I help them break through so that they can reach their goals. This is a focus on multicultural and social justice. It's really important for me to bring in people of diverse backgrounds, which is actually the theme of the podcast uh, it's an emerging theme I wasn't even noticing. It's very mm -hmm. multicultural. It's really important to me. I think it's crucial that we address the multicultural impacts of COVID-19 and how it's affecting people disproportionately and just hearing about the different cultural dynamics of what's going on. I would love for you to tell us about how things have been going. How are you doing personally? Thank you for asking. You know, I get that question a lot and I think my honest answer is that it's a roller coaster. Some days I'm doing well, other days it's like, oh my gosh, what's happening here? My outlook is always to find the meaning in events and try to find uh, the silver lining. And so I know that I've been struggling with a little bit of anxiety, some insomnia, some concerns, you know, about what's going to happen. So yeah, like a little bit of that, but I'm also using some of the skills that I've learned in my training to help manage that. And but yeah, I would say my best answer is a bit of a roller coaster. <laughs> Sounds pretty realistic right now. Some days are going to manage this and other days it's just kind of overwhelming just the very fact of this international pandemic. There was an article posted about this, how doctorate degree trains you to cope with this pandemic and the social isolation, you know, working towards a goal, not knowing what's going to finish. That kind of also helps navigate this. <laughs> That's a great point, knowing that we are so used to working from home, working in isolation, working on a goal that is not always very clearly defined. The details are kind of up to us individually. Yeah, that helps us to prepare for something like this as well. I think we're kind of equipped in many ways for this situation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So tell us about the community you serve and your location geographically. What has COVID-19 been like? How have people been managing? What has the landscape been like? In general, the anxiety is very palpable. I work in a hospital setting and I also work in private practice here in San Diego. I work with a lot of different populations, including veterans, Latinx, LGBT, so different communities. And I think overall, the anxiety is palpable. But particularly for our Latino community, it just depends. What the pandemic has, I think, is very clear is that it demonstrates the racial ethnic disparities as well as socioeconomic. So we're looking at also class. So who gets to work from home? Who has to go out into the world and serve in these special roles, right? Essential workers. A lot of people like myself find ourselves in a place that either if we have a job, we're really grateful to have an income and really grateful to have that. And at the same time, we're having to go out into the community and potentially expose ourselves to the virus. I'm grateful that I get to work, even though I go into certain locations to work, I'm still able to do it remotely. And so not everybody has that opportunity. 
Some other things that I've seen is some people getting laid off or being worried about being laid off from their work or not having enough food or even being confined in a household where it may or may not be the healthiest. Given the population that I work with, it's been really interesting. Like you go on social media and you see family time and creating these awesome videos or recipes and like that all looks fun and it's amazing but that may not be the experience for everybody. From what we can tell, there's increased domestic violence cases, more CPS cases, child protective services. And so it really is an array of issues. And I think related to different racial and ethnic health disparities. Yeah, so that's kind of where we're at. And the community is also coming together to provide essential services, particularly for our lower income and Latinx community. There's a lot of resources and there's a lot of things being developed in Spanish to serve this subset of the population. I'm glad to hear that. I was wondering about that, whether there's been a strong effort in terms of clear information about how to prevent infection and mm -hmm. spread of COVID-19. I'm hearing some pretty good information on the news, on television. Spanish television's been pretty good, I think. Have you heard anything in terms of misinformation or difficulty accessing information in Spanish? Not really. I haven't fully covered the Spanish-speaking media, but from what I've seen, it's comparable to what we hear in English. I know that there are efforts to translate some of the materials. So some organizations that I work with, when they put out something in English, they put it out in Spanish. So I think as far as I can see, again, I'm not in the trenches, so I don't know exactly what's going on. But from what I can tell, there's a lot of people rallying together. And even just on social media, I know that I'm part of a group and somebody posted something about this older gentleman who was struggling and, you know, he was asking people for work because his work was shut down. And people just rallied and even a GoFundMe was created and people were like, oh, I'll drop off groceries. And then I provided some, some links to social services. And I think overall, like the community is coming together. And when they see that somebody's down, there are efforts to try and help them or at least connect them to services. I think culturally there's this different approach to handling something like this. And I love to mention and give special acknowledgement to the fact that the Mexican supermarkets were the first to open early for the seniors mm -hmm. and the disabled community and the immunocompromised. And I think that's wonderful. I think it was first at Vallarta and then after that it was Northgate. And then mm -hmm. soon after that, later on, it became Vons and all these other supermarkets. That experience of wanting to support others who are going through circumstances as immigrants and navigating language and culture and policy and all mm -hmm. these different things. It's just been wonderful to see. And yeah, and I think it comes from this cultural belief or background that where one eats, three can eat, you know, sharing the sharing of resources. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about the mental health side of things. What types of, I know you mentioned there's trauma in terms of domestic violence trends. We're hearing about how difficult that is and also how difficult it can be to be living in a home where there's maybe a a lot of people in one home due to economic or various family circumstances, different cultures of living with different generations. Living in smaller spaces with more people can mm -hmm. be difficult during this time of quarantine and the pandemic. What are some of the mental health trends that you've noticed? So I think there's two perspectives to answering this. So some of the things that you mentioned, and I'll focus on 
there's also a positive thing. People are engaging more with family. They're having meals together. They're engaging in quality time. And so that has been a positive thing as well that has happened. And some families are getting closer. I know that communication with my sister and my niece have increased. She's a newborn, so I can't go over to see her. And so that communication has strengthened. And then for the people that don't have that, and I think for both camps. So in general, what we're seeing is higher rates of anxiety, some people having experiencing symptoms of depression, substance use has gone up. So people are figuring out how to cope. And also when you're quarantined with somebody, there's more irritability like before when you used to, if you were going to work, everybody left and then came back. But if you're spending hours together, and especially if it's a smaller space, that can get more challenging. And so I think in general, we're seeing definitely anxiety and, and the substance use is also going up. And these things, some of them are normal responses to a global pandemic. So these are things that we would expect to see. However, we need to be watchful of when it becomes a bigger problem. So something that needs medical attention or psychiatric care. And I know those things sound so scary. It's just a mental health provider, somebody that you can talk to. More people are reaching out. I know some people, either because of finances, they're having to space out their therapy sessions. And at the same time, there's other people that are like, well, I have time for therapy now, so I might as well do it. And so we're getting a little bit of, of both. Have you seen any changes to stigma related to mental health seeking therapy? You know, that's a really tough one to answer because I can see it on both sides. Traditionally, people who are like type A's and self-sufficient and also in our culture, right? at least in Mexican culture, we go by this like, si se puede, yes, we can, or everything's going to be okay, or just trusting that things will work out. Everything happens for a reason. And so that can serve, and this is my perspective, is that that can be helpful. And at the same time, it could mask not really embracing those emotions that we're going through. Like we're scared, right? We don't know what's going to happen. Things are uncertain. And at the same time, we're also seeing the stigma being reduced. So especially with social media, there's a lot more people that are coming out, a lot more therapists that are also signing up to see individuals and working with individuals with their budgets. And so making mental health more accessible because people want mental health care, but we have a barrier to entry. And so now that we've moved to telehealth, that kind of opens up the space to get treatment. And so I think some people still have that challenge, but I think we're turning the tide into destigmatizing mental health and accessing services. We were actually watching something on television on the Spanish news, maybe two or three days ago. And this point was coming up about the difficulty of accessing mental health services. Could you speak a little bit more about accessibility, if that's still a challenge and how it could be made more possible for people to get mental health that they need? Yeah, oh my gosh, this is such a good topic. And I have so many thoughts about this. Historically, mental health services isn't something that we go to, especially as um, Latinos. This could be generational. Again, a lot of this is generational. The newer generation is more open to seeking treatment. But in general, we have this culture of like, no, I don't need help. I can do this on my own. Or it's not that bad. I can manage it. So when the person decides 
you know what, this is, this is more than I can handle. Maybe I do need professional help or using the, the stages of change model. So now they're ready. And so now we're facing institutional barriers. Some of the barriers that we've seen, and this is just in-person sessions, is do I have insurance or do I not have insurance? If I have insurance, then great, then there's a clear path to accessing services. And I'll talk about that in a moment. If I don't have health insurance, then I have to look for other services. So county mental health, community health clinics, which all provide wonderful services. Many of them are, and I can't speak to the local ones because I haven't worked in them, but I know that in traditionally, it's more like crisis management or not like getting immediate relief, what you can do. The other part with the people that, let's say that you do have health insurance, and I speak to this because this has happened to me as well. It's like, great, I'm ready. I want to see somebody. And then you call the insurance. And so it's really hard to navigate because it's like, who is available? And then once you're able to get with somebody and schedule an appointment, sometimes you're waitlisted. This is not all the time, right? Like in general, you're waitlisted because the services are so impacted that you don't get your first appointment until two, three months after. And the frustration there is that I don't need help two, three months from today. I need help today. And so there's a lot of people that are addressing this issue. And so there are now more databases that are opening up to serve individuals. So we have Latinx therapy, therapy for Latinx. Psychology Today has been there for a long time and you can sort by language and things like that. There's more databases that are open that make mental health care more accessible. And I think because now we were forced to turn to telehealth, perhaps it makes it more accessible. So people don't have to worry about taking time off from work because when you go to therapy, you have to, if it's during the day, you have to take time off of work and then come back or you have to deal with traffic or, you know, childcare. And so accessing looks a little bit different. I know that for some of the individuals that we see, some of them can't because they don't have the technology or some don't have private space. So a lot of people are doing therapy from their car while they're walking around in their neighborhood. So it looks very different. So I always tell people like when you go and you schedule your first appointment, even if it's like months out, ask them to book you three to six appointments. Like today, can I, can I, can I schedule my next three to six appointments? And you kind of have to push for it. They're not going to want to give it to you, but you kind of have to advocate for yourself so that your next session isn't like, a month after today. Access is very complex, but I think that we're moving in the right direction in making it more accessible and more culturally competent and sensitive. Whether you're an immigrant or English is your first language or not, getting mental health access is not easy. It can be a challenge for anybody. And I really like the, the tips that you provided about getting those appointments uh, ahead mm-hmm. of time so that they're not spaced out so far in advance. And then also, I love the fact that you mentioned these groups and these websites where people can access mental health services for Latinx populations. We had talked about things that have been going well with the community and what's going well in terms of COVID-19 response for mental health. We're not feeling as isolated if we are living with family. Now we get to spend time together. So many dogs have been 
purchased <laughs> recently. People have adopted oh, wow. and bought dogs. There's a lot there in terms of togetherness and loved ones around mm -hmm. you. So that's been great. And then in terms of the challenges that still have remained, you talked about this access challenge. You talked about domestic violence and things like that. Are there other things that you think need to continue to be improved at this time? For our Latinx community, having resources in Spanish. So I see a lot of different programs that have, especially in social media, like social media posts. And there are some in Spanish, but I think that we need to do more. And actually, that's a project that I have been thinking about doing. And now that I'm getting ready to, to produce is having like what's something that you can have while you're waiting for your therapy session that's like in a month or two what are some skills that you can learn today that you can begin to implement to de-escalate or to find relief in some of those symptoms so i think that is definitely an area of improvement and i think there are efforts being made i know that there's a podcast i think Latinx Therapy has a podcast where they're providing talks like this with professionals and different specialties. And so I think there is some progress, but I think we need to do more. How are you managing during this time? So I hear that sometimes when you're providing mental health services or counseling services, you need time to debrief, practice self-care because of the weight of some of mm -hmm. the stories and information you've been hearing. How have you been practicing self-care? Great question. Thank you. This is something that I have been working on personally. When you go through a graduate program, you kind of throw self-care down the wayside. So I've been learning to do things that replenish me, things that fuel me whether that is having a conversation with a friend, setting up a video chat, to watching TV shows via Netflix has a thing where you can like chat with people, finding different ways to even just taking a moment. Like today I had like a 15 minute break between meetings and it's like, you know what, I'm going to go sit with my dog and just kind of play with him for a little bit. To creating, I launched a store and I'm creating products. And one of the things, a quote that I read was, and I put it, I put a sticky on my desk, is channel anxious energy into creativity. I don't remember where I heard that, but that's one way that I've been taking better care of myself, noticing also when I'm not so that I can start shifting my habits or my behaviors and setting myself up for success. Also eating a little healthier, that has been helpful as well. Just finding little things that give me energy and fuel me are things that I do personally. And also, I also follow, I do a mindful meditation in the morning, sometimes at night. I practice different coping skills. Mindfulness has really been the key for me in noticing my thoughts, my emotions, my physical reactions, and my behavior actions. And my body tells me when I'm not taking care of myself. So I've been listening to that as well. What would you like the world to know at this time? <laughs> if you could oh, say something, you know, to share your thoughts out there, what would that recommendation be about response and care at this time? I think, um, and this is something that I'm learning about in my professional practice, but also personal, is the concept of acceptance and mindfulness and noticing and just creating the space to be where you are. And it's neither good or bad. So if embracing those emotions, embracing whatever comes up, whether it's, it's a good emotion, a not so good emotion, however it is that we label them, just creating that space. If I feel sad, then feel sad. If you feel excited, then feel excited. If you feel fear, then 
experience it. And by letting, allowing ourselves to experience these emotions, it doesn't mean we're going to stay there forever. The emotion will be there, but it's only momentary. And so if we could do that and also treat ourselves with more self-compassion, so the compassion that we have for others, also turning it towards ourselves. That would be my message. And spread kindness. Be kind. Just be kind to each other. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciated this conversation and this focus on mental health and mindfulness. And so I'm really grateful that you were here today on our podcast. And many thanks. Thank you for having me. So you probably are aware by now that we use Anchor.fm here on this podcast for COVID-19 PPC. And I wanted to tell you about anchor.fm because this is actually the second uh, podcast hosting software I've used and um, I really like it. I love how easy it is to use. I love the fact that it's free and they have so many tools here like music and all these different options that help you record and edit your podcast either from your phone or your PC or your computer and then Anchor distributes your podcast for you so that it can be on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And then also you can even make money from your podcast with minimum, with no minimum listenership. And it's all you need to make a podcast in one place. So if you're new to podcasting and you're interested in um, getting started, I recommend Anchor.fm. So what you can do is download the free Anchor app or go to Anchor.fm to get started um, that's my recommendation. And, um, you know, after almost a year of podcasting, I'm really glad I found Anchor just recently. It just makes things so much easier. And, uh, yeah, come check out anchor.fm. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions, any burning questions about COVID-19, feel free to send me a message in Anchor anchor.fm slash COVID-19 PPC is our website. And until next time, stay well and take good care out there.